Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Now, before we get into this week's episode, I have to give a big shout-out to William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast, who took the time to appear on the previous episode where we discussed WrestleMania 15 and the following night's episode of Raw for over five hours. As I've mentioned before, those mega episodes are a huge time commitment, and he's a busy guy, so once again I owe him a huge debt of gratitude for being generous enough to co-host that show. And of course, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to listen to that mega episode, and also while you're at it, subscribe to the New Blood Rising podcast, because it's fucking fantastic. Also, if you did listen to that mega episode, you heard me say that I would be attending Money in the Bank in Hartford, Connecticut, and indeed I did, alongside Adam from the Nitromania podcast. I've mentioned this on the show before, but I don't really watch much of the modern WWE product. However, I've always loved the concept of the Money in the Bank ladder matches, not to mention the fact that I wanted to see Kofi Kingston defend his WWE title, because really, who knows how long that one's going to last. And I also wanted to see Becky Lynch defend her two titles, so I had to jump at the opportunity. My quick verdict? Really fun show. Bailey winning the briefcase and cashing in got a massive pop, and I actually posted a video I took of the cash-in on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, in case you want to see what the scene was like inside the arena at the time. Good stuff. Brock Lesnar winning the men's briefcase after not being in the match made no goddamn sense, but hey, I guess it was a nice surprise or something. And Seth Rollins versus AJ Styles was fucking great, too. So all in all, much like Daniel Bryan, I'd give Money in the Bank a very solid B+. Glad that I went. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, April 5th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, right on Long Island. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 17 episodes of Raw, including the episode from October 12, 1998, covered in episode number 43 of this podcast, where Stone Cold Steve Austin filled Vince McMahon's car with cement, 11 episodes of SmackDown, and a handful of pay-per-views, including one portion of WrestleMania 2, SummerSlam 2002, and about eight months ago, WWE Evolution, the first-ever all-women's pay-per-view. We open the show with highlights from last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat, where Jerry Lawler conducted a sit-down interview with Vince and Stephanie McMahon at Vince's home in Greenwich, Connecticut. In case you need a reminder, last week on Raw, The Undertaker and the Ministry of Darkness abducted Stephanie and kept her in the basement of the arena until Ken Shamrock rescued her. And so, during this Sunday Night Heat interview, Vince actually provides us with a bit of information about some of the storylines over the past two months. 
In particular, the teddy bear that The Undertaker burned was Stephanie's childhood teddy bear, and then we get a bit of a creepier revelation. Going back to the episode of Raw, which aired the night after St. Valentine's Day Massacre, The Undertaker gave Shane McMahon an envelope and told him to deliver it to Vince. Well, in this Sunday Night Heat interview, Vince tells us that the envelope contained pictures of Stephanie out on the town, and also pictures of her in her bedroom, which Vince describes as, quote, uncomfortable. Hoobly. So, okay, we're filling in some of the backstory. That's all well and good. Unfortunately, Vince Russo feels the need to really put his stamp on this interview because, well, take a listen, and I think you'll see what I mean. Vince, this is, this is we're, I mean, we're talking about The Undertaker. You've known this guy for, what, 10 years? Yeah, about a decade. I thought I knew him, but he's changed. He, um, he, he's believing in, in this creature that was created. He has become this creature. He's like, uh, and not only has he become this, this, this cretin, he, he has other people believing in what he now believes in. He has people following him. He has, and I don't, I don't know what he wants. I don't know. I mean, if it's just about business, I've known him for a long time. I've known Mark for a long time. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if I should say this or not, but there's a term in wrestling that is like sometimes living your gimmick. I mean, you yeah. you created The Undertaker, and now it's like, yeah, but the, the difference is here, he, he is believing now. Right. And this transformation, he's believing in, in who he thinks he should be. And I, I, don't, I don't know where it's going because he has other people believing in that. And, and this is personal now. This is not about business. I mean, if it's about business, I'm a businessman. I sit down with biz, other businessmen. We discuss things. This is something very, very strange. This is something very weird. And it involves Stephanie. I'd just like to add, you know, I've, I've known Mark, too. And uh, it's, it's like Dad said, you know, I, I guess I just never really did know him. To shake hands with someone and, you know, have friendly conversations and then all of a sudden, you know, start sending you pictures and you don't need to go there okay well can, i mean i know it's uncomfortable but can you be more specific about what exactly happened and what took place when 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 you were abducted um well you know i was i was sitting in the office and no stuff you don't don't it's okay it's just important that that she's safe Really That's what's okay, important. Dad. Is it really okay? No. Don't. You know, I, I don't feel safe at home anymore. Right. I don't feel safe anywhere. The only place I really feel safe is when I'm with when I'm with my dad. And again, this is something that's personal. And if um if it doesn't stop, somebody is gonna get hurt. And I'll just be damned if it's going to be my daughter. Yes, that's right. The Undertaker, or pardon me, Mark, 
has apparently started to live his gimmick, as Jerry Lawler just openly says. Because clearly, now we're shooting, bro. The Undertaker has a real name, and we're going to acknowledge it on camera. What a wonderful wrinkle to this storyline. Everything else is bullshit, but this angle is real now, because after nine years, we're admitting that The Undertaker is not actually supernatural, but he's just a guy playing dress-up. Awesome. Thanks for spelling that out, Vince Russo. Also, if The Undertaker is just believing in a bullshit gimmick, how is he still able to summon the power of lightning? Or is Vince McMahon just going to openly tell us that pyro guys do that for him, too? Because, man, that would make me really invested, I tell you that. Just bury the entire gimmick that fans have loved for years because Vince Russo wants to smarten everyone up, bro. We get it, dude. It's all fake. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Ugh, fuck me, I hate this shit. In case you couldn't tell. So anyway, that brings us up to speed for tonight's episode of Raw. So after the highlights of that interview, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... Look at my ass! Fart 316! Die, road dog, die! Hey, down in front, I want to be on TV! Poon 24-7! Hogan is a joke! And China equals the breast damn woman. Honestly... Not a very strong showing tonight. I expect much better from a New York crowd, and frankly, these Long Islanders really let me down. Pretty weak stuff. And surprisingly, for the first time in a while, instead of opening the show with a 15-minute promo, we kick right into a match. And not only that, but it's a match for the WWF Tag Team Titles, Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, accompanied by Deborah, versus Challengers, X-Pac, and... Kane? Now, you're probably wondering... Where the hell did the team of X-Pac and Kane suddenly come from over the past week? Well, as a quick explanation, last night on Heat, Jarrett and Owen issued an open challenge, which was answered by Kane all by himself. Jarrett eventually hit Kane with a guitar to draw the disqualification, and then Jarrett and Owen started double-teaming the Big Red Machine. But lo and behold, X-Pac came to Kane's rescue. And after they cleaned house, Kane actually grabbed X-Pac by the throat to chokeslam him, but then he thought better of it and put Pac back down. So that takes us to tonight. And during the match, Michael Cole informs us of a rather interesting tidbit completely out of nowhere. X-Pac's nemesis, Shane McMahon, has retired the European title. Yes, that's right. Shane is retiring undefeated, and apparently he's not relinquishing the belt. The plan is just to get rid of it after only two years of its existence. Okay, then. I feel like we could have used a bit more build-up for something that important, but no, it's just mentioned offhandedly during a tag match. Very bizarre. I guess that lets you know what they thought of the European Championship, though, doesn't it? So early on in the match, X-Pac played the face in peril, getting worked over off and on by Jarrett and Owen. And given the people involved, this was good stuff, because when you have X-Pac, Jeff Jarrett, and Owen Hart in there, no complaints on this end, for sure. All very good workers. And, in what is clearly a good sign for this X-Pac-Kane tandem, when Pac was lengthily getting beaten down in the ring, the fans started a loud, We Want Kane chant, so they are very much on board with a potential babyface Kane run. Good stuff. So eventually, X-Pac and Owen hit the dreaded double clothesline, knocking them both down to the mat. Owen managed to tag Jeff, and then, yes, X-Pac made the tag to Kane. And as you might expect, the Big Red Machine begins to clean house on Jared and Owen for a while, and, well, let's pick it up from there. And now X-Pac in the ring. Look out. Pac will bust it right 
so, yes, Kane chokeslammed Jeff Jarrett, and then, when X-Pac came over toward him, Kane actually grabbed X-Pac by the throat, making it seem like he was going to chokeslam his own partner, but no, instead, Kane then picked up Pac and press-slammed him on top of Jarrett, referee Mike Chioda made the count, and yes, your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions are X-Pac and Kane. So yes, Jeff and Owen's reign with the titles ends after a span of 64 days, which is pretty respectable by Attitude Era standards. As for X-Pac, this is his third reign with the tag titles, having held them with Marty Jannetty for one week in 1994, and for one day with Bob Hawley in 1995. Yes, that's right, two tag team title reigns for a combined eight days. Hopefully this run will be a little bit more successful for him. And as for Kane, this is also his third reign with the tag titles, having held them on two separate occasions with Mankind last summer for a combined 33 days. Will the unlikely team of X-Pac and Kane turn out to be a winning combination? I suppose. Time will tell. From there, we cut backstage to an office where Vince, Shane, and Stephanie McMahon are all seated on couches. Vince tells Shane that his only priority tonight is protecting Stephanie, so Shane can go do what he has to do. And amusingly, we then get a soundbite from Vince that a lot of fans of the modern-day product would probably think sums up his mindset about Raw these days. As far as the show is concerned, I don't give a damn. You, you, you go do what you've got to do. I don't care. I just don't give a damn. Yep, I'd say that's pretty accurate. So from there, Shane leaves and heads out into the hallway where the entire corporation is waiting. He says that they're going to ensure that tonight is a night that Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Big Show will never forget, and we then head to another commercial. And when we return, Lucas from WWF.com is backstage to interview X-Pac, who is holding his tag team title belt. Lucas asks Pac where Kane is, and he says that he has no idea, but as long as he keeps showing up to defend the belts, no one will be able to stop them. Meanwhile, I kind of wish that Lucas would stop showing up on my screen, because he kind of sucks, but that's a whole other issue. So we then go back into the arena, where the entire corporation, except for Vince McMahon and Stephanie, are heading to the ring. And in case you're wondering, yes, when I say the entire corporation, I am including the big boss man in there. Now remember, the boss man was fucking hung from the hell in a cell by a noose at WrestleMania, and yet, here he is, as though nothing happened. Not only that, but Bossman also worked a match last night on Heat, where he defeated Darren Drozdov, and, stop me if you've heard this before, he ripped out Droz's nose ring during the match. I don't want to say that Triple H and Batista plagiarized the Bossman and Draws at WrestleMania 35, but I think it's pretty clear. But okay, again, let's just have some perspective here. So this episode of Raw was taped on March 30th, which means this was literally... Two days after Bossman was hung from the cell at WrestleMania. Two days. As I said in the previous episode with William Rankin, when you do a spot like that where you appear to literally murder someone on camera, you have to keep them off TV for at least a month minimum. Doing a spot like that should, you know, matter if you're going to take the time to perform it. And not only that, but there's zero build-up for his return here. He's just standing there with the rest of the corporation as though nothing ever happened. I mean, Jesus Christ, way to make that spot count, guys. Good lord. Just awful planning there. So anyway, 
Another important thing to note about this corporation appearance is that The Rock is still holding Stone Cold Steve Austin's Smoking Skull WWF title belt, which he stole from Austin last week. And Michael Cole informs us that, at Backlash, Austin and Rock will once again go head-to-head with that very WWF title on the line. And so, Shane McMahon grabs a mic to kick things off here. And as a reminder, last week the corporation was attacking Stone Cold, but the big show came down to the ring to provide some backup, and he and Stone Cold then cleaned house. So with that in mind, Shane has booked a handicap match here tonight. The Big Show versus Corporation members The Rock and Triple H. Yes, that's right. After all those months of feuding with each other, The Rock and Triple H are now on the same side. And with that in mind, Shane gives Hunter the mic so he can cut his first heel promo as a member of the corporation, followed by some further words from the Great One. Let me tell you what. Big show. You'd be better off tonight changing your name to No Show. Because every Nimrod in this building and every one of you watching at home with your little peon lives is going to get to see what you've been dying to see for a long, long time. And that is The Rock. And that is Triple H standing side by side. Not going at it, but kicking ass together. And Paul White, from what I see, you've got a whole lot of big, fat, hairy, dimpled ass for us to kick. (laughs) It's cool when Shane's in charge. Paul White, the big show. The Rock will tell you this. The Rock says he wants to check you into the SmackDown Hotel. But he's pretty damn sure that you'll break the damn toilet seat. But that's okay. Because what The Rock says, The Rock wants to go back there and say, Hey, Paul White, don't come out here. Don't get the smack laid down on you. And your response will probably be, But that's okay. Because, Paul White, you will walk down that aisle. And you will go two on one. And The Rock will take not one foot, but two Turn them sideways and stick them straight up your rectum. <laughs> the Rock! That when it's all show. said and done, all the smoke is cleared, all the Rock's fans are through chanting his name, Rocky, Rocky! exactly why The Rock is the people's choice why The Rock is the people's champ and why The Rock is the best damn WWF champ there ever was if you smell damn it when it's right then it's sing along with The Rock but as far as for now if you smell What the rock? Is cooking. King, I wonder what Austin 
thinks about that smoking skull belt being on the shoulder of the rock. Cameraman, <laughs> while you're right there, I want you to do something for me. Check this out. Boss man, if you will. Tess, check this out. Rock, put that thing around your waist. Check that out. Stone Cold Steve Austin's personal property. Oh, yeah. Because that's what the match between The Rock and Austin is all about. It's about the World Wrestling Federation Championship. And Austin, get a good shot on that. Once you get it locked up, I want you to put it up on that Titan Tron. Uh -oh. Get a good, get a good look in there. Get a good shot. Good shot. There you go. Get up in there. Now hold. Freeze frame it right there. Oh yeah. Now Austin, that's your personal property up there because you can't own a piece of the rock. No, 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 no. But the rock sure does own a piece of stone coal. Now, throughout the night, at the snap of my fingers, at my command, I'm going to continue to put that still up there as a reminder for you, Stone Cold Steve Austin, that you will never, and I mean never, get your property back. You know why? Because Shane McMahon said so. <laughs> yes! Shane McMahon is provoking Stone Cold Steve Austin. A lot of things not going to like this. He wants his property back. So there you have it. Triple H and The Rock are prepared to bury the hatchet and take on the big show together tonight. And meanwhile, Shane McMahon is not shy about attempting to provoke Stone Cold Steve Austin by putting a picture of his smoking skull title belt up on the Titantron in an attempt to taunt the rattlesnake. Interesting strategy? I suppose we'll see if it pays off. And on that note, after a commercial break, Shane heads backstage where Vince is in his office with Stephanie. Shane then proceeds to tell Vince what he just did in the ring and, well, it appears that he gets a rather chilly reception from his father. That's the way it is, man. Man, we, what a kicker to start the show. You can't believe it. What do you mean? What do you well, do? Listen, you got Triple H and you got the most electrifying man in sports entertainment, The Rock, taking on the big show, Paul White, in a handicap match tonight. And then you got The Rock. He's got Austin's personal property. And I had him freeze it up in the Titan Tron. You'd be so proud. It's up there. Austin's personal property. Oh, it's for his head and everything. Man, awesome. Yeah. It's a good idea to provoke these guys. Let's go to those guys. You know, who? Provoke Austin and Paul. I get, I get the corporation. I mean, it's cool. Please calm down. I'm just Slow hyped. Down. hyped. Yeah. That's good. I, I said before, I don't give a damn what you're doing tonight. I don't know that it's a really good idea to provoke these guys. Let's take it easy, okay? I just want to get through the night. That's all. You want me to say, good job? That, okay? Just, just chill, Shane. Your words, all right? Poor Shane. It appears that his father is much more concerned with his sister than with him. And I have to say, when Vince shoots him down at the end there, Shane actually does a pretty good job of looking rather dejected. Gotta say, I did feel a little bit bad for him here, despite his dickish antics in the previous segment. He just can't seem to get that fatherly acceptance. Alas. So from there, we head back into the arena where Ivory is heading to the ring. If you recall in the episode of Sunday Night Heat before WrestleMania, Terry Runnels took one of her cigars and burned Ivory's face, and with that in mind, Ivory grabs a mic and calls out Terry. She says that she knows Jacqueline is tough, but she thinks that Terry doesn't have what it takes to get it done in a fight, so she wants to find out. And so, that does indeed bring out Terry Runnels and Jacqueline from backstage. However, Terry apparently tells Jackie that she can handle Ivory all by herself, so she tells Jackie to head right back to the locker room. And with that in mind, the t-shirt wearing Terry enters the ring, 
and Ivory quickly proceeds to tear her shirt right off, leaving Terry topless in the ring. Now, of course, we don't actually see anything because Terry covers herself up with her hands, but yes, she is indeed fully topless. But then, once that happens, the lights go out, and yes, for the second week in a row, the Ministry of Darkness is interrupting a women's segment. Last week, The Undertaker briefly took Sable hostage, and this week he's cutting short a brawl between two women. Although, however, I have to note, when the lights come back on, both Ivory and Terry are gone, so clearly they knew enough to get the hell out of there. And so, that big, fake faker named Mark, who doesn't actually have magical powers, grabs a microphone, and here is what he has to say. McMahon, I know you're back there watching me. And I know that you have your precious little daughter right by your side. So you wrap your arms around her. Hold her tight. And give her my regards. That reminds me. There's a little secret that I need to inform you of, Vince. That tonight, there will be a sacrifice. Uh-oh. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't like this. Oh. Not just any sacrifice, but there's a certain beautiful young woman who will become one with my ministry. No. No, this is, this is no good at all. She will be taken from her family, and she will break her father's heart when she accepts the Lord of Darkness as her personal savior. See, I'm telling you, this is going too far. And I was an Undertaker fan, but this is... This is is too much and you know Vince I know that you would do anything in your power you would give your very soul to stop me but the reality is there's not a damn thing that you can do about it ominous words there from Taker saying that there will be another sacrifice tonight of quote a certain beautiful young woman, which clearly appears to not bode well for Stephanie McMahon. And from there, we then cut backstage, where Vince is understandably freaking out, and he orders Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe to get him more police officers. Vince then tells Shane that he may be forced to, quote, give that SOB what he wants after all, which I assume means control of the WWF, since that is what Taker has been saying that he wants for the past two months. And after another commercial break, we go back into Vince's office, where there are indeed now about seven or eight cops standing around, along with Patterson and Briscoe. Vince reassures Stephanie that no one will harm her, and he tells her to stay by his side. Will The Undertaker be able to sacrifice Stephanie tonight? Stay tuned. So we then go back into the arena for our next match, WWF Hardcore Champion Hardcore Holly versus Al Snow, accompanied by Head, in a match which is... Not for the hardcore title, and in fact, it's not a hardcore match at all, so it's already about 50% less entertaining than it should be. 
However, almost immediately, Al Snow attempts to make me eat those words because, after he elbows Holly out of the ring, Al then grabs the top rope and leaps, doing a mid-air somersault onto Holly down to the arena floor. Kudos to Al Snow for attempting that spot, but the landing certainly looked pretty rough. So both men then re-enter the ring, and, to my surprise, they actually have a pretty solid four-minute match here. And I say to my surprise because I was not expecting a non-hardcore match between Al Snow and Hardcore Holly to go for more than two minutes. Clearly, the Attitude Era has significantly lowered my expectations. But anyway, the finish came when Holly went for a clothesline, but Al ducked and kicked him in the stomach. He then picked up Holly and nailed him with his snowplow finisher, basically a scoop slam brain buster, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner is Al Snow. Yes, just like modern-day WWE booking, you've got to do a non-title match so the challenger wins, and then when they have the rematch for the title, the champion retains. I mean, that's just classic boring-as-shit booking right there. At least, I'm assuming that's how this will all play out. I guess we'll see. But then, no sooner does Al Snow pick up the victory than... Dr. Death Steve Williams emerges from backstage, accompanied by Jim Ross. Dr. Death rolls into the ring, where he immediately hits Al with a dangerous-looking back suplex almost dropping him on his fucking neck, then he gives one to Holly, and then one more to Al Snow for good measure. As I mentioned on the last episode, Dr. Death's tenure with the WWF is pretty much over in a week or so, but at least he gets his money's worth by almost breaking two guys' necks on his way out. Sadly, the next time we'll see him delivering incredibly unsafe-looking suplexes is after a pinata-on-a-pole match in WCW seven months from now. And yes, that is an actual match which occurs. Ugh. So from there, we cut to what appears to be the control room, where Shane McMahon tells the production guys to display Stone Cold's smoking skull belt on the Titantron in order to taunt him. Despite his father's warnings, Shane is clearly pressing ahead with his plan to provoke Austin, and, I dare say, that doesn't usually work out very well. And after that, we then cut elsewhere backstage, where we see... Christian hanging from his arms by the ceiling as The Undertaker mercilessly whips him with a belt. Presumably, this is punishment for last week, when Ken Shamrock put Christian in the ankle lock, and Christian then told him that the Ministry of Darkness was keeping Stephanie in the basement of the building. And, perhaps as a way of additionally humiliating the brood, The Undertaker tells Gangrel and Edge to hold Christian's legs so he can't squirm around while Taker is whipping him. Pretty brutal stuff there, but I do have a word of advice for The Undertaker. If you really want to punish someone by flogging them, it would be much more effective if you have that guy remove his big puffy pirate shirt first. Just a quick tip there. And so, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, the New Age Outlaws versus the aforementioned Gangrel and Edge. Flashing back to last week, Mr. Ass lost his hardcore title at WrestleMania, and Road Dog lost his Intercontinental title on Raw the following night, so perhaps they've given up on their singles ambitions and decided to reunite as a tag team. It certainly worked well for them in the past. And early on in the match, we got a spot I wasn't expecting. With the Brood working over Road Dog, Edge picked him up into the inverted atomic drop position, then Gangrel came off the ropes and hit him with a flying clothesline, so essentially, the brood just busted out the Heart Foundation's old heart attack finisher. Not something I was expecting to see, but a welcome surprise nonetheless. And then, shortly after that, we got another nifty double-team spot, where the brood put Road Dog on the top rope, and then both Gangrel and Edge got on the second rope, they each put their arms around Road Dog, 
And yes, they hit what was essentially a double superplex. Really cool spot there. Eventually, though, Road Dog managed to make the hot tag to Billy Gunn, but shortly after he did that, a woozy-looking Christian wandered out from backstage. So let's pick it up from there. Billy Gunn hammering away on edge. Road Dog on Gangrel. Look out. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Take a look who's here. I see him. Look at this now. Billy Gunn drops edge. A cover. Gangrel makes the save. And here's Road Dog, And that's Christian. Christian, who was just flogged by the Undertaker. Yeah, I don't even see how the guy's still standing. Oh, watch his back. Oh, man. Road Dog just tossed Christian into the ring. I don't think Christian realizes where he is. For what? Look at him. So what you heard there was a dazed-looking Christian wandering to ringside, and that turned out to be pretty bad timing for him. Why? Because Road Dog then knocked down Gangrel and rolled Christian into the ring, where Billy Gunn proceeded to hit him with a Famasser. And somehow, even though Christian and Gangrel look nothing alike, referee Earl Hebner counted to three, despite the fact that Christian was not actually in the match. Okay, then. Your winners, the New Age Outlaws. And as you heard Jerry Lawler say in that clip, if The Undertaker was pissed at Christian before, this probably won't do anything to change his mind. Yikes. Although really, I think The Undertaker should have more of a complaint with Earl Hebner there, because that was just stupid for him to count that pinfall. Senior official my ass. So from there, we cut backstage where Jim Ross is with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yes, even though we just saw him cheering on Dr. Death while he was realigning Al Snow's spinal column, JR is now on interview duty as well. Sure, why not? So Stone Cold keeps things pretty brief, and he tells JR that if Shane McMahon puts an image of the Smoking Skull belt up on the Titantron one more time, it's going to, quote, cost the whole McMahon family a lot of money. And when Jim Ross asks him what he means by that, Austin tells us to keep watching, and maybe we'll find out. So once again, Shane's strategy of trying to provoke Stone Cold appears to be rather questionable, to say the least. And after another commercial break, we go back into the arena, where it is now time for our next match, Corporation member Ken Shamrock versus Ministry of Darkness member Viscera. Hey, two former King of the Ring winners going head-to-head! And mercifully, they keep this one pretty short because, let's face it, anytime Viscera is involved, it ain't gonna be pretty. However, we do get a really awesome spot as Shamrock somehow manages to hit Viscera with a belly-to-belly suplex. Really impressive power there. But then, no sooner does that happen than the lights go out and the Ministry of Darkness runs to the ring. The Acolytes, Midian, and the Brood then proceed to beat the crap out of Shamrock as the Undertaker and Paul Bearer watch on from the top of the ramp. And for some reason... No members of the corporation come out from backstage to help Shamrock, so the Ministry pretty much have their way with him for a while. Eventually, they take him out of the ring and carry him off through the crowd, which was actually a pretty nice touch. 
Now, remember that last week, Shamrock was the one who got Christian to divulge where Stephanie was being held by the ministry, so this appears to be payback for Shamrock's efforts. And as soon as the ministry carries him away, we cut backstage where the corporation appears to want to go help Shamrock, but Shane McMahon tells them not to. He says that is probably exactly what the ministry wants them to do, and it could be a trap, so he tells them to hang back. Interesting reasoning there, I suppose. And we then cut to the parking lot where the ministry proceeds to put Shamrock's lifeless body into the trunk of a car, and yes, the acolytes then drive away with him inside. R.I.P. Ken Shamrock. He was 35 years old. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, Val Venus versus Mankind. What an incredibly random matchup this is. And of course, we're in Long Island tonight, which is where Mick Foley is from, so the crowd absolutely goes nuts for him. In fact, Mick even grabs the mic before the match and parodies Val's signature line by saying, Hello, Long Island. And then he says that he has two words for us. Mmm, beefy. Channeling his Chef Boyardee commercial. All right, then. Also, strangely, as this match is going on, Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler spend a fair portion of it completely ignoring what's going on so they can take outside the lines and 2020 to task for what they perceive as unfair coverage of the WWF in the media lately. Folks, WWF.com has the uh, unedited and uncut version of the Outside the Lines show about sports entertainment that aired on ESPN in a 2020 interview, which is going to air this Wednesday. All you got to do is go to WWF.com for the story you won't see on the Networks King after they edit it. Mr. McMahon takes on ABC News. Well, can you blame him? I mean, let's face it. Did you see that show Outside the Line on ESPN? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're trying to do a hatchet job on the World Wrestling Federation. Of course. You know, I, I got to agree with the. There's a writer, Jim oh. Barcelone, writes for the Miami Herald. He did a big story, and it was sort of an expose in itself. Oh, he... He exposed the fact that, if you look at it, ESPN is owned by ABC, right? Right. 2020's on ABC, right? Yep. And uh, what else is on ABC? Could it be Monday Night Football? Yep. <laughs> right. Let's face it. Stevie Wonder could see this. I mean, last season, the World Wrestling Federation and Monday Night Raw kicked Monday Night Football's butt in the rating. I mean, they had the lowest ratings ever. WWF had the highest ratings ever. Oh! Could it be that somebody is telling ESPN, like ABC, see if you can do a number on the WWF and get people to watch Monday Night Football again? Uh, quick memo to Jerry Lawler. The highest rating Monday Night Raw has ever achieved up to this point was last week's 6.51. Meanwhile, for the 1998-99 NFL season, Monday Night Football averaged a 13.9 rating more than twice what Raw did on its very best day. But apparently to the King, that means that Raw, quote-unquote, kicked Monday Night Football's butt in the ratings. Now, for sure, the WWF definitely had to have eaten into their viewership, but Raw never once even came remotely close to beating Monday Night Football in the ratings. I believe the closest they ever got was beating Monday Night Football in a few quarter-hour segments, specifically in the 18-35 to 35 demographic, which is hugely impressive, no question, but the overall head-to-head -head ratings are not even in the same ballpark. Also, at the very end there, Lawler said that ESPN's piece was designed to get people to watch Monday Night Football instead of Raw, but 
Uh, hey, King, it's April. Monday Night Football hasn't been on for three months at this point, and it won't be back for another five months. So it's not exactly like Outside the Lines aired the piece during, you know, football season. They aired it to coincide with WrestleMania, obviously. And of course, the whole Outside the Lines segment was about wrestler deaths and steroids, which, naturally, the commentators completely avoid mentioning, instead simply calling the show a hatchet job. Outside the Lines brought attention to real issues in wrestling, so of course we'll just attack the network's character instead without addressing those issues. I will say, the WWF certainly was ahead of its time there, that's for sure. Oh, and uh, just to put an ironic capper on this segment, the XFL coming to ABC and ESPN next February. Be sure to tune in. So anyway, Mankind and Val Venus have a pretty solid almost five-minute match. The finish comes when Foley hits Val with a double-arm DDT, followed by, you guessed it, Mr. Socko. Strangely, though, when Foley puts Socko in Val's mouth, referee Teddy Long doesn't pick up Val's arm or even count him down to the mat since Val is lying on his back. Instead, with Val still clearly conscious, Teddy Long just calls for the bell. So, uh, I guess that means Mankind wins via ref stoppage? Sure, why not? Let's go with that. But hey, who really cares about the wrestling portion anyway, when we can just spend a fair majority of the match bitching about unfair media coverage, right? Right? <sighs> so we then cut backstage, where Vince McMahon is in his office with Stephanie and all of the police officers. However, the lights then begin to flicker, and Vince starts freaking out, so we cut to commercial. And when we come back, we see the Ministry of Darkness just standing in a hallway somewhere, looking like they're discussing their strategy. Riveting television, to be sure. And we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental Championship, Champion Goldust, accompanied by the Blue Meanie, versus Challenger The Godfather, who is accompanied by three of his hoes. And amusingly, before the match, The Godfather appears ready to make his usual offer to his opponent of taking the hoes instead of fighting him, but, presumably because he doesn't think Goldust would go for it, instead The Godfather just says... You know what? I'm just going to kick your ass. And so the match begins. And as you might expect, this one was kept pretty short, going less than three minutes. The finish came when the Godfather hit his hoe train running splash into the corner, and he then went to bounce off the ropes, but the blue meanie grabbed his foot. The Godfather then exited the ring and went after meanie, so Goldust then, in turn, went after the Godfather. Meanwhile, the hoes were apparently upset with the Blue Meanie tripping the Godfather, so they started chasing him away, and while all this was going on, referee Mike Chioda was continuing his count, which resulted in a double countout. Your winner is no one, so Goldust retains his freshly won Intercontinental title. Ah yes, the old Vince Russo special, no one jobs, bro. As for this Goldust-Godfather feud, clearly, it must continue, and stay tuned for next week's episode for more on that. So we then cut backstage once again, where Vince McMahon is on the phone, seemingly trying to call someone, but this time, the lights go out completely. We hear Vince yell, Stephanie! But we can't see what's going on, and then we cut to commercial. And when we come back from break, we go into the arena where the large Undertaker symbol is lying at the top of the ramp. The Ministry of Darkness then leads out someone who is dressed entirely in black with a hood over her face so we can't see who it is. 
Obviously, we can assume that it's Stephanie, but during the segment, we get a quick cut backstage where we see that Stephanie is still sitting with Vince, surrounded by police officers in the office. Huh. So then, who is it under the hood? Well, whoever it is, the ministry proceeds to lie her down on the Undertaker symbol, and, well, we can just pick it up from there. And by the way, during this clip I'm going to play, you're going to hear Michael Cole say, That's Stephanie! But just to be clear, he's reacting to seeing the shot of Stephanie backstage. She is not the person, obviously, being placed on the Undertaker symbol, just so we're clear. So anyway, take a listen. Oh my gosh, this is... King, our worst fears may be realized. The Ministry of Darkness and... They've got some... They've got somebody. They've got someone, all right. That's Stephanie. How can they do this? Where, where's Mr. McMahon and where's the security? Come on, this is... King, what did they do to overcome the security? I mean, what's happened to the security to Mr. I McMahon? I don't know, I don't know, but this is... I mean, come on, this is, this is not right. It's one, just one thing. It's not right to, to, to screw with a man's family, and it's not right to do something like this to Mr. McMahon's innocent daughter. I mean, Stephanie McMahon's never hurt anybody. King, The Undertaker and the Ministry, they've gone way too far this time. They've gone over the edge. The Undertaker, he's lost it. I mean, it's one thing, obviously, to be upset with Mr. McMahon. But to drag his innocent daughter into this... sacrificed here tonight and I'm not going to disappoint you am I you see Vince what happens here tonight wait a minute wait you're responsible for that's Stephanie although this is not the young girl that I want but she will have to do for now Oh, fear not, little one. There is nothing to fear. Oh, there's nobody here that can help you now. Soon, you will be one of us. The Undertaker setting an example. See, Stephanie, when I look into her eyes, I see you. When I touch her skin. Do you know who that is? I feel you. That's Stephanie, but I think that's Ryan Shamrock. McMahon. It is. That's Ryan Shamrock. It's time that she comes home. It's time she became one of us. We have to answer to a power far greater than what we know. And he summons her. She is the chosen one. King, that explains why Brian's brother, Ken Shamrock, was abducted. It's time that you 
come home. Raise her. Come on, they, they need to send some security out here. What are they going to do to her now? The Undertaker sending a message to Mr. McMahon. Listen to her screaming. Come on, put her down. So yes, as you heard there, The Undertaker eventually removes the black hood on the woman's head, and we see that it is actually Ryan Shamrock. Gotta say, great swerve here. This was actually a surprise to me, because I completely do not remember this ever happening, but I think it really does make perfect sense. We thought the Ministry removed Ken Shamrock from the building earlier as payback for him rescuing Stephanie last week, but we can now assume that they did it so he wouldn't interfere when they tried to sacrifice his sister. Pretty brilliant stuff there. Didn't see it coming, but it actually does make total sense. And yes, The Undertaker then proceeds to have the Ministry raise his symbol above the ramp, so he has indeed sacrificed another victim. And let me also say, on this podcast, I've noted on several occasions how Ryan Shamrock is an absolutely terrible actress, but here, though, pretty goddamn convincing. You could hear her blood-curdling screams in the background of that clip I just played, and she does a great job of looking scared throughout the segment. It's actually kind of horrifying, so kudos to her for being able to pull this off. And to put the capper on the segment, we once again cut back to Vince's office, where the chairman, in one of the most over-the-top moments you'll ever see, walks right up to the camera, looks directly into it, then yells, You stay away from Stephanie, you evil bastard! It's... Amazing. I actually put a picture of it up on our Twitter, at RiotitudePod, so feel free to check that out if you want to see an extreme close-up of an irate Vince McMahon's face. I imagine it must be pretty similar to what the writing team experiences on a daily basis. And so, after commercial break, we go back into the arena where Shane McMahon enters the ring and grabs a microphone. And it should be noted, Shane looks... Completely unfazed by all of the ministry's threats to his father and sister, because his first words are, quote, And now we're ready for the main event of the evening. Oh, yeah. Clearly, so much concern. And yes, from there, it is indeed time for tonight's main event, a two-on-one handicap match, corporation members The Rock and Triple H, accompanied by China, versus The Big Show. And by the way, when Triple H and China come out from backstage, they enter to the DX theme music with Triple H wearing a DX shirt. And when Hunter enters the ring, he even does his usual crotch-chopping synchronized with the DX pyro, as though he was still a member of the fucking group. And to cap it all off, he grabs a mic and puts a slight variation on his usual promo by telling the fans, quote, You can all suck it! And at this point, I feel like I should say the same thing to Hunter that someone should have said to him in 2006. Dude, you're corporate now. Give up on the DX shtick. Yeesh. Oh, and speaking of theme songs, when Shane introduces the big show, it appears that he has some new theme music of his own. And now to take on The Rock and Triple H 
Ladies and gentlemen, the big show, Paul White. Okay, so I just have to say, there's something about the lyrics to this song that have always bothered me. Quote, Get ready for something that you'll never know. You won't see it coming, but I promise you'll know. So, what the fuck is it then? Will I never know, even though two seconds later you promise I'll know? That is pretty much the most contradictory shit ever. I even looked up the lyrics to make sure that they were correct, and I'm pretty sure they are, so what the fuck. As far as I'm concerned, well, it's a big bad song tonight, but maybe that's just me. But anyway, let's just get into the main event. So essentially, the way this match plays out is that Rock and Triple H take turns tagging each other in, but neither of them are really able to mount much of an offense against Big Show because he keeps turning them away. In fact, neither of them even manage to knock Show down throughout the duration of the match. And yes, this definitely goes a long way toward making Big Show look like a convincing threat, which makes it all the more frustrating that they jobbed him out cleanly to Stone Cold on the go-home episode before WrestleMania. Sorry, I'm still kind of pissed about that. But anyway, the match goes for about four and a half minutes until Big Show grabs The Rock by the throat and lifts him up for the choke slam. But before he can deliver it, China enters the ring and nails Show with a low blow, drawing the disqualification. From there, Rock, Triple H, China, and Shane take turns beating on him, with Rock nailing him in the face with the smoking skull belt to finally take Big Show down to the mat. And then, to add further insult to injury, Rock proceeds to nail Big Show with a corporate elbow, amusingly mocking Big Show's signature chokeslam gesture before he hits it. But once he does that, Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits, and he comes charging down the ramp. Austin immediately takes out both Rock and Triple H, doing the dreaded double noggin knocker, but then, here's where things get a little bit interesting. So Austin hits Triple H with a Stone Cold Stunner near the ring ropes, and I think he assumed that Hunter was then going to roll out of the ring. Instead, Triple H pops back up to his feet only about five or six seconds later, where the Big Show then nails him with a chokeslam. In the meantime, Rock has rolled out of the ring and headed up the aisle, so Stone Cold then proceeds to give a long stare to the fallen Triple H, and I'm pretty sure Austin was legitimately pissed off at Hunter for getting up so quickly after the stunner. I could just be reading into that, but I feel fairly certain that that's what was going on here. Watch it for yourself and let me know what you think, but I feel pretty confident about this one. So eventually, Hunter does indeed roll out of the ring, where China helps him walk up to the top of the ramp, and at this point, it appears that the show is almost over, but Shane McMahon just can't help himself, despite Stone Cold's earlier warning. you will ever get to your problem. 
property. Oh, yeah. Right there, baby. I'm going to leave it up for the remainder of the night for you to look at as a reminder. You're telling Shane. Yeah, he provoked the rattlesnake again. Can't oh. remember what Austin said. He warned get Shane. Away, get away, Shane. Don't put that belt back up on the Titantron. Don't do it or it's going to cost this company. Well, he ain't going to do nothing now because Shane is safe. <laughs> yeah, Shane provoking the Texas rattlesnake yet again. Let's take a look at that Titantron, baby. Yeah, you love it, don't oh, you? 20,000 people in here. Their eyes are fixed on the Titantron and that shot of Stone hey. What's he saying? Austin just said, bring it down. Wait a minute. That's a Titan Tron, you idiot. Austin asked the Big Show to bring it down. <laughs> there are some things even the Big Show can't do. Ken, Ken, I hate to burst your bubble, but the Titan Tron's moving. Wait a minute. So yes, as you heard there, despite Stone Cold's earlier warning not to display the picture of the Smoking Skull belt on the Titantron anymore, Shane McMahon does just that. Shane, The Rock, Triple H, and China then head off backstage as an angry Steve Austin then starts walking up the ramp, and at that point, it appears that he has an idea. Stone Cold asks the Big Show to come to the top of the ramp, and he then asks him to pull down the Titantron. Now, just to be clear, Big Show is not actually pulling down the entire structure, but rather he's grabbing those steel bars at the bottom of the video screen and pulling them down to floor level. The actual Titantron is still standing because if he pulled the whole thing down, I assume it would probably kill several hundred fans in the audience. And while Big Show was pulling the bars down, Stone Cold headed off backstage, and we weren't sure what he was up to until Big Show brought the bars down to the ground, and after that, yes, Austin then cut a hole through the screen of the Titantron, and made his way back out onto the ramp. 
From there, he took a long pole with a hook at the end of it and proceeded to make even more tears in the video screen. And so, true to his word, it appears that Stone Cold has indeed cost the McMahon family quite a bit of money. And that is how we went off the air. Also, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I always thought the Titantron was essentially a gigantic television screen, but now I know it was actually just a big piece of cloth with the video projected onto it. Just goes to show you, I'm a moron. But anyway, we're not done just yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw scored its highest rating of all time, a 6.51, and easily defeated Nitro's 3.51. This week, Raw dropped down to a still impressive 5.83, and Nitro went all the way up to a 4.32. So yes, they increased their rating by almost a full point. Very impressive turnaround for WCW there. And how did they do it? Well, this was the week the WCW did that massive overhaul of their product with a new intro, a new set, more on that a little bit later, and a brand new logo. Yes, this is the show where they got rid of their longtime logo, which simply said WCW and had little lines through the W's, and they replaced it with, well, a stranger-looking one. In this case, it's still the letters WCW, but the C in the middle really just kind of looks like a sharp claw machine. In fact, at first glance, it almost looks like it says WW because the C appears to be in the background. But essentially, this is the logo they're running with from now until the day the company closes. Which one do you prefer? Feel free to let me know, but obviously I'm on team original logo. And amusingly, WCW actually spent some cash to tell people about this change, and one of the ways they did this was an ad they placed in USA Today. And, in all honesty... This is one of the most bizarre ways to advertise a product I've ever seen. Why? Because the ad in the paper simply says, quote, Looks like something a bird left on the hood of my car, April 5th, 8 o'clock p.m., TNT. And in the background, you can see a faded outline of the new logo. Now keep in mind, it doesn't say the name of the show or give any context whatsoever. Essentially, it's just saying, Tune into the TNT Network on April 5th at 8 o'clock p.m. because you might see some shit? I'm not making this up. You can actually find pictures of this ad if you Google it. They are out there. This actually did happen. But, hey, I guess it must have worked since Nitro's rating was up substantially for the first time in a while. So with that in mind, here's what you could have been watching over on the Bird Shit Network. Hack defeated Kendall Windham in a kendo stick match. Conan defeated Lismark Jr., Scott Steiner defeated Ming, Jim Duggan defeated Lenny Lane, because, you know, nothing says new way forward like Jim fucking Duggan going over, Stevie Ray defeated Brian Adams, Horace, and Vincent in a battle royal where the winner earned the right to assume leadership over NWO Black and White. And yes, you heard that correctly, that means Stevie Ray is now the leader of the NWO. 
Perry, Saturn, and Raven defeated Kidman and Rey Mysterio by disqualification, so Kidman and Rey retained their tag team titles. Booker T defeated Chris Jericho via disqualification, and more on Jericho in just a moment. Buff Bagwell defeated Bam Bam Bigelow in a match where the loser could no longer use the letter B in his name. Okay, that's a lie, but would have made it more interesting. And in your main event, Goldberg defeated Diamond Dallas Page, Hulk Hogan, and Ric Flair via disqualification in a four-way match, so Flair retained his WCW heavyweight title. And I don't mean to belabor the point here, but in your first main event of your brand new revamped show, you give the fans a DQ finish in a world title match. Questionable, to say the least. And by the way, Goldberg hit Hogan with a jackhammer and went to pin him, but Kevin Nash was actually late with his scheduled run-in, so Hogan had to kick out of the jackhammer, which I believe may have been a first. And then, to make things even better, the show ended when Sting was lowered from the rafters, and he pointed his bat towards several screens around the arena, and nothing happened. Eventually, he just gave up, but then, yes, finally, they queued up the video they were supposed to play. And so, even on a show when WCW was supposed to be putting their new best foot forward, it ended with them looking stupid. Ugh. But now, back to Chris Jericho for just a moment. Tonight's match against Booker T was Jericho's final televised match in WCW. He'll end up working a handful of house shows up until July, but this is his final TV match in World Championship Wrestling. Right around this point, I believe Jericho actually gets injured, and during that time he makes it clear to Eric Bischoff that he won't be signing a new contract with WCW, and so he's essentially taken off TV to wait out his existing contract. Will we see him in the WWF anytime soon? Well, not exactly. There's still a while to go before we get to that point, but in the meantime, Nitro certainly just became a lot less interesting. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. So for my money, this was a pretty solid episode of Raw. Definitely not great, but probably thumbs in the middle trending upward. The ministry hinting that it will sacrifice Stephanie only for it to end up being Ryan Shamrock was truly a great swerve that I did not see coming. That was one of those moments where I'm actually glad I forgot it had ever happened, because it was a fantastic surprise that completely made sense. Well done, Vince Russo. I give you a lot of criticism, but you also do deserve credit for a lot of this as well. Additionally, we had a whopping seven matches on Raw this week, and five of them got at least four minutes of ring time. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but trust me, that's an eternity by added to our standards lately. The standout moment among those matches was probably X-Pac and Kane winning the tag team titles, and I know we had the wacky thrown-together partners last summer with Stone Cold and The Undertaker, but I'm much more okay with X-Pac and Kane because they're pretty much mid-carders right now, and this actually gives them something to do. So yes, all in all, I would say a minor thumbs up for this episode of Raw. The sacrifice of Ryan Shamrock and the destruction of the Titantron were fun moments, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you go out of your way to watch the whole episode. Well, unless, of course, you're trying to decide whether to watch this episode or a modern-day episode of Raw, in which case, always go with the Attitude Era 1. Trust me, you'll thank me later. And before we wrap up, let's dive into this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer, and boy oh boy, are there a lot of noteworthy tidbits to cover, so let's jump right in. The British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith was admitted to a hospital in Calgary this week after having suffered excruciating back pain for several weeks. 
Doctors diagnosed him with a staph infection in his spine, and it's assumed that he'll be hospitalized for quite a while, with his wrestling career possibly being over. Thankfully, this turns out to not be the case. You may recall that all of this allegedly stems from the fact that Davey injured his back last fall when he landed on the trapdoor which was built under the ring for the Ultimate Warrior's surprise entrances. Boy, that warrior is just the gift that keeps on giving, isn't he? Regarding the new set for Monday Nitro, Dave Meltzer reports that many wrestlers in WCW think the design of the set doesn't look very safe, and they were making bets as to who would be the first to trip on it during their entrance. I point this out because, funny enough, in future episodes of Nitro, both Goldberg and Juventud Guerrera actually do end up slipping on the ramp. Goldberg just kind of momentarily loses his balance, but Hoovy literally slips and falls right on his ass and stays down for a while. And if you want to see both of those moments, I invite you to simply Google Botchamania 65. You'll thank me later. MMA fighter Tank Abbott recently signed a contract with WCW, and Meltzer anticipates that he'll eventually be working with Goldberg. Spoiler alert, that does prove to be true, but not until about a year and a half from now, and uh, let's just say, when it happens, it's not very good. So yes, Tank Abbott has signed with WCW, but you know who hasn't? Trish Stratus! She was backstage at last week's episode of Nitro in Toronto, trying to get hired since nothing has yet been finalized with the WWF. So remember that one, folks. WCW could have had Trish Stratus. Would it have made a difference in the long run? Almost certainly not, but it is food for thought. Some interesting notes regarding WrestleMania here. Meltzer reports that the WWF offered both Monica Lewinsky and Howard Stern seven-figure deals to appear on the show. Apparently, Lewinsky shot the idea down immediately, but Howard Stern was in negotiations with them for several weeks before ultimately deciding not to take part. Ah, poor Vince Russo. I bet having Howard Stern at WrestleMania would have pretty much been his fantasy scenario. Alas. Shawn Michaels was apparently initially scheduled to appear on last week's episode of Raw, but there was a ton of heat on him for going off script during his promo at WrestleMania, so those plans were cancelled. Meltzer isn't sure which was the off-script part, but if I had to guess, I think it'd be the part where HBK banned the corporation from ringside, but then he had to backtrack and say that he would let Vince come to the ring. That's just my guess, though, because it seemed incredibly convenient given what happened in the main event, but that's just my hunch. In rather unfortunate news, Steven Regal was released from the WWF this week. He's been in rehab for the past few months, and he was only three weeks away from completing it, so they allowed him to go home for a weekend, and he ended up getting shit-faced. That was apparently the last straw, so the WWF fired him. Although, I get the feeling that we may see him again at some point. We shall see. And finally, reports are that a biography of Mick Foley is currently being written by an author named Lou Sahadi. However, another spoiler alert here... Foley ends up being dissatisfied with his work, and he decides to just write the book himself. I mean, really? A wrestler writing a book? Yeah, good luck with that one, Mick. I'm sure that'll work out really well. <laughs> pathetic. That's just pathetic. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. 
Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I'll be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip from the episode of 2020, which airs this week, which Vince McMahon and the WWF obviously were not too crazy about, given Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler's lengthy tirade on Raw. In this clip, the interviewer speaks with Mick Foley about him inspiring teenagers to have crazy backyard wrestling matches, and Mick gives his two cents on the issue, including an amusing reference to the old Batman television series from the 1960s. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Lots of these backyard groups have their own websites where they share photos and videos of their matches. Has pro wrestling brought all this on? We showed some of the clips to the wrestler many kids idolize, Mick Foley, known as Mankind. Uh, that looks like fun. I mean, that's no different than, than kids going out and playing tackle football when they really should be playing touch football. Should the kids be hitting each other with garbage cans? Probably not, but they all look like they're friends. I don't think they're doing anything out of anger. I wasn't so crazy about the light bulbs to the head. Foley is pro wrestling's top daredevil. His jump off a roof as a teenager that led to his professional career. So he understands the thrill, but he worries that some kids are taking on more risk than they realize. The difference is, when I jumped, the guy moved out of the way. I wasn't putting someone else's life in jeopardy. I don't even do that in our ring in front of, in front of uh, millions of people on TV. I, I, don't, I, I have too much respect for the guys I wrestle to put them in that much danger. They think that they're doing it properly. I mean, does it concern you that they're trying to mimic what they think they see you do in the ring? Well, I, I don't know. Did it concern uh, Adam West and Burt Ward that, that, uh, that me and my brother were going pow, wham, zowie, you know, in, in, in the kitchen? I'm essentially... Adam West with a different color pair of tights. <laughs>